Welcome in the Great Khan's Tent. History, Literature and Storytelling In the Great Khan's Tent is now available on YouTube. You can find us using this podcast name. Fear not, listeners, episodes will still be released on this podcast first, and it is only after a delay of a week that I will upload them onto YouTube. You can still find us on all your podcast providers first. Are you interested in getting the book you just published reviewed? Writing some piece of literature and need help getting it out there and promoted? Interested in sharing what piece of literature we should cover next? Well, fret not. In the Great Khan's Tent is now available on Patreon, where your contribution can help in growing this podcast. For as low as $3 a month, a price less than a good, and I mean good, cup of coffee, you can help contribute to the growth of this podcast. Every bit helps, but as always, it is not necessary to do so, but will be appreciated. Find the Patreon link on our website, on our social media accounts, or email us and we can send it to you. Thank you. In each episode, you may notice that a background track has been provided, like this. This is a result of my editorial decision to include a background track when there is some interaction between a human and a jinn, an otherworldly being that is a common race that frequently appears in these tales. If you have any suggestions, comments, or complaints, please be sure to email us at all lowercase in the great Hans tent at gmail.com. That is in the great Hans tent at gmail.com. We would love to hear from our listeners. Thank you for listening, and now on with the show. In this episode, we continue the story of Nuruddin Ali and his son, and of Shamsuddin Muhammad and his daughter, with nights 21 and 22. In this part, unlike in other tales told, we see here believing jinns directly facilitate the story by transporting Hassan Badruddin, the son of Nuruddin, to Cairo to participate in the shenanigans that are occurring. We also get to see the appearance of the first known Jewish person directly interacting with the main character in a story. In this case, it is a moneylender named Ishaq or an unnamed Jew in other versions, giving Hassan Badruddin some much-needed funds to continue his life after he ran away from being executed. Much of the poetry in this episode can be linked to a poet named Al-Mutanabi, 915-965 CE, a court poet during the Abbasid Caliphate. His father, the vizier Nuruddin then fell sick and called him into his presence and said to him, O oh my son, know that this world is a perishable abode and the world to come is an everlasting abode. I wish to give thee some precepts and do thou understand what I am about to say to thee and incline thy heart to it. He said, No, my son, that this world is transitory, while the next world is eternal. I wish to give you various injunctions, so try to understand what I have to say, and take heed of it. 
and he began to counsel him respecting the proper mode of conducting himself in society, how to deal with people, and the due management of his affairs. And when he had done so, he reflected upon his brother and his native place and country, and wept at the thought of his separation from those he loved. Wiping away his tears, he recited, If I complain of distance, what am I to say? And if I feel longing, what way of escape is there? I might send messengers to speak for me, but none of them can convey a lover's complaint. I might show endurance, but after the beloved's loss, the lifespan of the lover is not long. Nothing is left except yearning and grief together with tears that stream down my cheeks. Those whom I love are absent from my sight, but they are found still settled in my heart. Do you not see, though I have long been spurned, my covenant is subject to no change. Has her distance led you to forget your love? Have tears and fasting given you a care? We are of the same clan, both you and I but you still try me with long-lasting censure. When Nuruddin in tears had finished reciting this, he turned to his son and said, O oh my son, hear my words. Before I give you my injunctions, you must know that I have a brother in Cairo who is vizier of Egypt, and I quitted him and departed against his will. He then took out a piece of paper and wrote upon it all that had happened to him from first to last, together with the date of his marriage, an introduction to the daughter of the vizier, and the date of his arrival at al-Basra, and his interview with its vizier. Many years have passed since the day of our quarrel. This is what I have written to him, and may Allah now be with him in my stead and having added some strict admonition, he said to his son, Keep this charge, for the paper on which it is written containeth an account of thine origin and thy rank and lineage, and if any evil accident befall thee, repair to Cairo and inquire for thine uncle, and salute him and inform him that I died in a strange land, ardently desiring that I should see him. Hassan, my son, keep this testament, for in it is an account of your origin and your genealogy. Therefore Hassan Badruddin took the paper, and having folded it, and wrapped it in a piece of wax cloth, sewed it between the lining and outer cloth of his cap, and wept for his father, that he should be parted from him in his youth. Nuruddin then said to his son, I give you five injunctions. The first is, I charge thee that thou be not familiar with anyone, for in retirement is security. Divinely gifted was the poet who said, There is none in thy time whose friendship thou shouldest covet, nor any intimate who, when fortune is treacherous, will be faithful. Live then apart, and rely upon no man. I have given thee in these words good advice and sufficient. Do not be on intimate terms with anyone, 
for in this way you will be safe from the evil they may do to you. Safety lies in seclusion, so do not be too familiar with anyone. I have heard what the poet says. There is no one in this age of yours for whose friendship you can hope when time is harsh to you. No friend will stay faithful. Live alone and choose no one in whom to trust. This then is my advice. It is enough. The second injunction, my son, is to accustom thyself to taciturnity, occupy thyself with thine own affairs, and use not many words. For the poet saith, Taciturnity is an ornament, and in silence is security. Therefore, when thou speakest, be not loquacious. For if thou repent once of thy silence, thou wilt surely repent many times of thy speech. Keep silent, and to concern thyself with your own faults, and not with the faults of others. This saying goes, whoever stays silent escapes. And I have heard the poets say, silence is an adornment which affords you safety. But if you speak, refrain from babble. If you regret your silence once, you will regret having spoken many times. The third injunction, beware of drinking wine, for it is a source of every kind of mischief. The poet saith on this subject, I have slandered wine and those who drink it, and have become the friend of such as condemn it. Wine leadeth astray from the path of resistitude, and openeth the doors to evil. Be on your guard against drinking wine, for wine is the root of all discord, and it carries away men's wits. So I repeat, guard against it. I have heard the poet say, I gave up drinking wine, and have become a source of guidance for its censurers. Drink makes the drunken stray from the right path and opens the door to evil. The fourth injunction, my son, is this. Hate no man and oppress none, for oppression is base. The poet saith, Oppress not if thou hast the power to do so, for oppression will eventually bring thee repentance. Thine eye will sleep while the oppressed wakeful will call for vengeance upon thee, and the eye of Allah sleepeth not. Injure no man, lest time injure you, for one day it will favor you, and the next day it will harm you, and this world is alone to be repaid. I have heard what the poet says. Act slowly, do not rush to what you want. Be merciful, and be known for your mercy, no power surpasses that of Allah, and every wrongdoer will be oppressed. The fifth injunction is this. Despise thy wealth, but not thyself. Yet bestow not wealth save upon him who deserveth it. If thou keepeth, it will keep thee, but if thou squander it, it will ruin thee. And then wilt thou need the assistance of the least of mankind. It hath been saith by the poet, When my wealth faileth, no friend assisted death me. 
but when it aboundeth, all men are my friends. How many enemies for the sake of wealth have consorted with me, and my companions in the time of want hath abandoned me. Guard your wealth, and it will guard you. Protect it, and it will protect you. Do not overspend, or you will find yourself in need of help from the most insignificant people. Look after your money, for it will be a salve for your wounds. I have heard the poets say, If I lack money, then I have no friends. But all men are my friends when I don't have wealth. How many friends have helped me spend, but when the money went, they all deserted me. In this manner, he continued to admonish his son Hassan Badruddin until his spirit departed, after which Hassan stayed at home mourning for him. The house became a scene for mourning, and the sultan and all the emirs grieved for him, and they buried him. They continued their mourning during a period of two months, and the son of Nuruddin rode not out, nor went to the court, nor presented himself before the sultan. This earned him the sultan's anger, and the sultan instated one of the chamberlains in his place and appointed a new vizier in the place of his father, and ordered this vizier to put seals upon all the houses of Nuruddin, upon his wealth and all his buildings and other possessions. So the new vizier went with the chamberlains to the house of the vizier Nuruddin to seal its door and arrest his son Hassan Badruddin and bring him before the sultan that he might do to him what his judgment required. But there was among the troops of one of the Mamelukes of the deceased vizier Nuruddin, and he could not endure that the son of his master should be treated thus. He therefore repaired to Hassan Badruddin, whom he found with a downcast head and mourning heart, sitting by the door of his house, broken-hearted, and with a head bowed in sorrow. On account of the death of his father, the Mamluk dismounted, kissed his hand, and said, My master and son of my master, quick, quick, run away before you are doomed. What is the matter? asked Hassan, trembling. The Sultan is angry with you, and has ordered your arrest, replied the Mamluk. Misfortune is hot on my heels so flee for your life. Hassan asked him, will the execution of the order be delayed long enough for me to enter my house and take somewhat of my worldly possessions by which to obtain support during my exile? But the Mamluk answered, save thyself. Get up now, master, urged the Mamluk, and leave at once. And when Hassan heard these words, got up reciting these lines. If you meet injustice, save your life, and let the house lament its builders. You can replace the country that ye lose, but there is no replacement for your life. Send out no messengers on any grave affair, for only you yourself will give you good advice. 
the lion's neck is only thick because it looks after all of its own affairs. Then heeding the Mamluk's warning, he covered his head with the skirt of his robe and going forth on foot, fled out of the city and he heard the people saying, The Sultan hath sent the new vizier to the house of the deceased vizier to seal his wealth and other possessions and to arrest his son Hassan Badruddin and bring him before him that he may put him to death. And the people were mourning for him on account of his beauty and loveliness. So when he heard what they said, he took a course that he had not intended, and not knowing whither to go, walked on until destiny urged him to the tomb of his father. Entering the burial ground, he bent his way among the tombs, until he seated himself at that of his father, where he removed his skirt from over his head. On the cloth were embroidered in gold the lines, You whose face gleams, like stars and dew, may your fame last forever, and your exalted glory stay eternally. And as he was sitting there, a Jew of old Basra approached, who happened to be a money changer, carrying saddlebags containing a great quantity of gold, and said to him, Master, why is it that I see that you are drained of color? Wherefore, O my master, do I see thee thus changed? He answered, I was just now sleeping, and I beheld my father reproaching me for having failed to visit his tomb. Wherefore I arose in alarm, fearing that the day would pass without my visiting it, and so the occurrence would distress me. The Jew then said to him, O my master, thy father dispatched some vessels with merchandise, and some of them have returned and it is my wish to purchase of thee the cargo of every vessel that hath arrived for a thousand pieces of gold. And so saying, he took out a purse filled with gold, and counted out from it a thousand pieces, which he paid to Hassan, the son of the vizier, and said to him, Write me a paper, and seal it. So Hassan took a paper, and wrote upon it, The writer of this paper, Hassan Badruddin, the son of Vizier Nuruddin, hath sold to Ishak the Jew, such a one of the whole cargo of every one of his father's vessels, that hath returned from her voyage for a thousand pieces of gold, and hath received the price in advance. And after he had taken a copy of it, the Jew went away with the paper, and Hassan wept, reflecting upon his former state of dignity and favor and the glory that had been his, and he recited, The dwelling is no dwelling since you left, and since you left we have no neighbors there. My old friends are now no friends, nor are the moons still moons. You left, and this has made the world a wilderness, and the wide lands are now all dark. Would that the crow that croaked of your going were stripped of feathers and could find no nest. I have scant store of patience. Now that you have gone, my body is gaunt, and many a wail is torn. 
do you think that those past nights will ever come again as we once knew them and the same home shelter us? At length the night closed in upon him and sleep overtook him and he remained asleep at his father's tomb until the moon rose when his head rolled from the tomb and he lay and slept on his back his face shining in the moonlight. Now the burial ground was inhabited by believing jinn, and the jinnia coming forth saw the face of Hassan as he lay asleep, and when she beheld him, was surprised at his beauty and loveliness, and exclaimed, Extolled be Allah's perfection, this youth is like none but the virgins of paradise. Glory to Allah, it is as though this youth is one of the children of paradise. She then soared into the sky to perform her accustomed circuits and saw an afrit on his flight. She saluted him and he returned her salutation and she said to him, Whence comest thou? He answered, From Cairo. And she said to him, Wilt thou go with me to behold the beauty of the youth who is sleeping in the burial ground? He replied, Yes. So they went together, and when they had descended into the burial ground, she said to him, Hast thou seen in the course of thy life a person like this? And the Ifrit looked upon him and exclaimed, Extolled be the perfection of him unto whom none is to be compared. But, O my sister, he added, if thou desire, I will relate to thee what I have seen. Tell me, she replied. So he said, I have seen a person resembling this youth in the land of Egypt, and that person is the daughter of the vizier. The sultan had heard of her and demanded her of her father, the vizier Shamsuddin, in marriage. But he answered him, O lord of the sultan, accept my excuse and pity my grief, for thou knowest that my brother Nuruddin departed from us and we know not where he is, and that he shared with me the office of the vizier. And the cause of his departure was this, that I was sitting conversing with him on the subject of marriage, and he was angry with me, and in anger went away. And he related to the sultan all that had passed between them, adding, this was the cause of his indignation, and I have been under an oath that I will not marry my daughter to any but the son of my brother from the day that her mother gave birth to her, and that was about fifteen years ago. And lately I heard that my brother had married the daughter of the vizier of al-Basra and obtained a son by her and I will not marry my daughter to any but him in honor of my brother. After I heard this, I recorded the date of my marriage, and of my wife's conception, and of the birth of this daughter. She is intended for the son of her uncle, and of other maidens there are plenty. But when the sultan heard these words of the vizier, he was violently enraged, and said, how is it that such a one as myself demandeth in marriage a daughter from one like thee, and thou withholdest her from him, and excusest thyself by an absurd pretext? 
by my head I will not marry her, but to one of less consideration than myself, in scorn of thy pride. And the sultan had a humpback groom with a hump before and a hump behind, and he ordered him to be brought and affianced him to the daughter of the vizier, commanding that he should introduce himself to her this night. The sultan is providing the groom with a wedding procession and be conducted in pompous procession. I left him in the middle of the mamluks of the sultan, who were surrounding him with lighted candles in their hands, laughing at him and mocking him at the door of the bath, while the daughter of the vizier was sitting in the midst of the dye woman and tire woman, weeping among her nurses and maids. She resembles more than any other person this youth. They have prohibited her father from going to her, and I have never seen, O oh my sister, a more ugly wretch than this humpback. But as to the maiden, she is more beautiful than this youth. Night 22 Morning now dawned, and Shehrazad broke off from what she had been allowed to say. Then, when it was the twenty-second night, she continued, I have heard, O auspicious Shehanshah, that when the Ifrit told the Jinnia that the Sultan, to the girl's great distress, was marrying her off to the hunchback room, and that apart from Hassan, he had never seen her match for beauty, the Jinnia replied. To this story of the Ifrit, the Jinnia answered, Thou liest! for this youth is the most beautiful of the people of his age. But the Ifrit replied, By Allah, O my sister, the maiden is more beautiful than he. However, none but he is suited to her, for they resemble each other, and probably are brother and sister, or cousins. And how will she be thrown away upon this humpback? She therefore said to him, O oh my brother, let us place ourselves beneath him, and lift him up, and take him to the maiden of whom thou speakest, and see which of the two is the more beautiful. The Ifrit answered, I hear and obey. This proposal is right, and there can be no better determination than this which thou hast chosen. Therefore I will carry him. So he lifted him up and soared into the sky, and the jinnia flew by his side, until he descended with him in the city of Cairo, where he placed him upon a mustabah, and roused him from his sleep. When therefore he awoke, and found that he was not at his father's tomb in the land of Al Basra, he looked to the right and left, and perceived that he was in a city that was not Al Basra, and would have cried out, but the Ifrit winked to him. He had brought for him a splendid robe, and made him put it on, and lighting for him a candle, said to him, Know that I have brought thee hither, and I desire to do thee a service for the sake of Allah. Take therefore this candle, and go with it to yonder bath, and mix with the people there, and proceed with them until thou arrivest at the saloon of the bride. 
Then go before and enter the saloon, and fear no one, and when thou hast entered, station thyself on the right of the hump-backed bridegroom, and whenever the tire-woman, and singing-women, and die-women come to thee, put thy hand into thy pocket. Thou wilt find it full of gold, and do thou take it by the handful and throw it to them, and imagine not that thou wilt put thy hand in it, and not find it filled with gold. Give therefore to every one who cometh to thee by the handful, and fear nothing, but rely upon him who created thee. For this will not be through thine own strength or power, but through the strength of Allah and his power. On hearing these words of the Ifrit, Hassan Badruddin said, What is this event, and what manner of kindness is this? He wondered who the bride might be, and why the Ifrit was doing him such a favor, but he lit the candle, and he went with his candle to the bath, where he found the humpback mounted on his horse, and he joined himself to the party, in the same garb in which he had arrived, and with the same comely appearance, being attired with a tarbouche and a turban, and a farajiyah, interwoven with gold. He proceeded with the pompous train, and every time that the singing woman stopped for the people to give them money, he put his hand into his pocket, and found it filled with gold, and he took it by the handful, and threw it into the tambourine, for the singing women and tire women, filling the tambourine with pieces of gold, and the singing women were amazed, and the people wondered at his beauty and loveliness. Thus he continued to do so, until they arrived at the house of the vizier Shamsuddin, when the chamberlains drove back the people and prevented their entrance. But the singing women and the tire women said, By Allah, we will not enter unless this youth enter with us, for he hath overwhelmed us with his favors and the bride shall not be displayed unless he is present. And upon this they entered him into the saloon of the festivity, and seated him in spite of the hump-backed bridegroom. Hassan was seated to the right of the hunchbacked bridegroom. All of the ladies of the emirs and viziers and chamberlains were ranged in two rows, each lady holding a large lighted candle and having her head well drawn across the lower part of her face. Thus they stood in two rows, to the right and to the left, from the foot of the couch of the bride to the upper end of the liwan that adjoined the chamber from which the bride was to come forth. And when the ladies beheld Hassan Badruddin and his beauty and loveliness, his face shining like the crescent of the moon, the hearts of all of them inclined to him, and the female singers said to all the women who were present, Know that this charming youth hath given us nothing but red gold, therefore fail not to serve him properly, and obey him in whatever he shall say. The women crowded around him to gaze at his charms, with their torches, looking at his beauty and envying his gracefulness and their minds were overpowered by astonishment at his beauty, in each of them wished 
that she might be in his bosom for a year or month or an hour. They removed the veils from their faces, and their hearts were perplexed, and they said, Joy to the person to whom this youth belongeth, or to the person over whom he is lord. Then they imprecated evil upon the humpback groom, and him who was the cause of this marriage to that lovely maiden, and every time that they prayed for blessings upon Hassan Badruddin, they imprecated misfortunes upon the humpback. The singing women then beat the tambourines, the flutes shrilled, and the tire women approached with the daughter of the vizier Shamsuddin in the midst of them. They had perfumed her with sweet scents and essences, and clad her and adorned her hair and neck with various ornaments, decking her with garments such as were worn by the ancient monarchs of Persia. Among these was a loose gown embroidered with red gold, presenting the forms of wild beasts and birds, hanging down over her clothes and around her neck, was a Yemeni necklace worth thousands, composed of jewels such as neither a sultan of al-Yemen nor a Caesar or Byzantine emperor ever collected. She was like the moon shining in its fourteenth night, and when she approached she resembled a huriya. Extolled be the perfection of him who created her so splendid a being. Praise be to Allah who created her in beauty. Hassan was sitting there, the cynosure of all eyes, when she appeared and moved forward, swaying as she did so. The women encompassed her, and appearing like stars, she in the midst of them, being as the moon when the clouds have withdrawn from before it. Meanwhile, Hassan Badruddin remained sitting with the company gazing at him, and as the bride approached with the dignified and graceful gait, the humpback groom rose to her to kiss her, but she turned aside from him and went and stood before Hassan, the son of her uncle. The company laughed at this, and when they beheld her turn towards Hassan Badruddin and saw him put his hand into his pocket and take out a handful of gold and throw it into the tambourine of the singing women, they were delighted and said, We wish that this bride were thine, and he smiled. All this time the humpbacked groom was alone, looking like an ape, and every time that they had lighted his candle it went out again, and he was confounded, and remained sitting in the dark, full of secret indignation, with all the company surrounding him, while the lighted candles presented an appearance of beauty that was most admirable so that every person of reflection was amazed at their splendor. As for Hassan, he was confronted by people carrying candles, and when he looked at the bridegroom sitting alone in the shadows, he was filled with perplexity and astonishment, but this changed to joy and delight when he looked at his cousin. He saw her face shining radiantly in the candlelight, but as to the bride, she raised her hands towards the heavens, and said, O Allah, make this to be my husband, and relieve me from this humpbacked groom. The tire woman then proceeded to display the bride in different dresses, 
and when he looked at the red satin dress that she was wearing, the first to be removed by her maids, as they unveiled her, this allowed Hassan to see, swaying as she moved with artful coquetry, bewitching both men and women, fitting the description of the poet. A sun on a branch set in a sand hill, appearing in a dress of pomegranate blossom. She let me drink the wine of her lips, and with the gift of her cheeks, she quenched the greatest fire. The maids then changed her dress and clothed her in a blue gown, so that she looked like the gleaming full moon, with her black hair, smooth cheeks, smiling mouth, jutting breasts and beautiful hands and wrists when they showed her in the second dress she was as a sublime poets have written she came forward in a gown of azure blue the color of the sky i looked and saw within this gown a summer moon set in a winter night they then changed that for another dress using some of her hair as a veil, letting the remaining long black locks hang loose. The length and blackness of this hair resembled the darkness of night, and she shot at hearts with the magic arrow of her eyes. Of the third dress in which they showed her, the poet has written, wailed by hair draped over cheeks, she was a temptation strong as a burning fire, I said, you have used night to wail the dawn. No, she replied, but I have wailed the moon in darkness. They then showed her in a fourth dress, and she came forward like the rising sun, swaying coquettishly and looking from side to side like a gazelle while transfixing hearts with the arrows of her eyelids, as the poet has said. The watchers saw a sun of loveliness, radiant in coquetry, adorned with bashfulness. She turned her smiling face to the sun of the day, since when the sun has wailed itself in a cloud. In her fifth dress, the adorable girl was like the branch of a ban tree or a thirsty gazelle. Her curls crept like scorpions, and she showed the wonders of her beauty as she shook her hips and displayed the locks of hair covering her temples, as has been described in the lines. She appeared as a full moon on a lucky night, with tender hands and slender figure. Her eyes enslaves men with its loveliness. The redness of her cheeks rivals the ruby. Her black hair falls over her hips. Beware the snakes that form these curling locks. Her flanks are soft, but though they may be smooth, her heart is harder than the solid rock. Her eyebrows shoot the arrows of her glance. Even from far away, they strike unerringly. If we embrace, I press against her belt, but her breasts keep me from holding her too close. Oh, for her beauty, which surpasses every grace. Oh, for her figure, which shames that tender brow. In the Great Khan's Tent is now available on Coffee. If you are interested in supporting this podcast, please click on the link available on our many social media platforms or email us. Why not donate to our coffee to show your appreciation? 
Every bit helps, and we thank you for your continued support. We love that our listeners love listening to us. Welcome to the vocabulary section for episode 16. First, let's look at some of the terms that were used in this episode. Tire woman, a lady's maid or a wardrobe woman in a theater. Tire is a dressing for hair including a wire frame, jewels, and ribbons. Mastaba, stone bench before a shop or a house. Tarbush, close-fitting flat-topped brimless hat shaped like a truncated cone, made of felt or cloth with a silk tassel. Hurie or huri, woman with beautiful eyes who are Described as a reward for the faithful Muslim believers in paradise. Bantry. A bantry or a bunion tree is a fig that drops accessory trunks from already existing trees. Farajie. A long-sleeved, loose coat. Now let's look at the vocabulary section for this episode. Abode. The place where one lives or a temporary stay. Precepts. A command or principle intended especially as a general rule of action or an order issued by legally constituted authority to a subordinate official. Quitted. Give up or to depart from or out of. Admonition or admonish. Gentle or friendly reproof, counsel or warning against fault or oversight. Ardently, characterized by warmth of feeling typically expressed in equal or zealous support or activity. Accustom, to make familiar with something through use or experience. Tacturnity, temperament disinclined to talk. Loquacious, full of excessive talk or given to frequent or excessive talk. Squander, to spend extravagantly or foolishly, or to lose through negligence or inaction. Aboundeth, left without needed protection, care or support by the owner. Extolled, to praise highly. Indignation, Anger aroused by something unjust, unworthy, or mean. Pretext. A purpose or motive alleged or an appearance assuming in order to cloak the real intention or state of affairs. Affianced. To solemnly promise oneself or another in exchange. Pompous. Excessively or having or exhibiting self-importance relating to or suggestive of pomp or splendor. Roused. To rouse from or as if from sleep or a repose, or to cause break from cover. Imprecated. To invoke evil on or to utter curses. Injunction. A writ granted by a court of equity whereby one is required to do or to refrain from doing a specified act or an act or an instance of enjoining. Babble, to talk enthusiastically or excessively, or to utter meaningless or unintelligible sounds. Shrilled, 
to utter or emit an acute piercing sound. Sinosure, one that serves to guide or direct or a center of attention. Coquetry, a flirtatious act or attitude. Sublime, to elevate or exalt, especially in dignity or honor. To render finer as in purity or excellence. Or to convey something inferior to something of higher value. This episode has been written, edited, and produced by Saf Big. Thank you for listening. I hope you have a wonderful day and or night. And may the journeys on which you are set upon be fruitful. Thank you for listening.